Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in French Studies, discussions with scholars of France and the Francophone world about their new books. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi. My guest today is Corey Olson, the author of The Cartographic Capital, Mapping Third Republic Paris, 1889 to 1934. And the book was published by Liverpool University Press in 2018. Hi there, Corey. Hi there, Roxanne. How are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you. I'm a huge fan of the podcast. I'm excited to talk about my book. Could you get us started by telling us a little bit more about yourself and what got you interested in working on France? Yes, it's a kind of a long and winding road. I'm originally from Sioux Falls, South Dakota, one of those square states in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> and uh, growing up, I, I and I mentioned this in the introduction, I, I for fun, would take the old Rand McNally atlas and kind of open it up and turn the pages and look at the different spaces and cities and states that either I had been to or I hadn't. And being from South Dakota, Minneapolis, for example, is the the first closest big city. And I would turn Mm -hmm. to Minneapolis and look at how the city was portrayed and all these different colored suburbs on there and the, the freeways that would go around. And Minnesota was next to Michigan. And so Detroit, a city that I had never been to, I but had you know heard of and, and stuff back in the 70s and 80s was a bit bigger and I don't know I just would do the same thing and look how cities were portrayed in Los Angeles and New York and kind of dream of of visiting these places and and, and looking at these maps and wondering what it was like to maybe walk the streets or uh, of, of you know these cities and so when it came time to go to school I actually was a geography major at South Dakota State mm-hmm. and my idea was I was going to become an urban and regional planner and the, you know, then I would have to go to a city and have to live in a big city and I got, would get to leave South Dakota. But I had taken French in high school and took a French class and got enough credits where I was talking to the professor and she convinced me to get a double major and said, why don't you just start the French major? If for some reason it doesn't work out, it's no big deal, no skin off your back. And I said, sure. So when it came time to graduating, I had to decide if I was going to do the master's in urban regional planning or get a master's in French. And I went to France for the very first time in over break and just fell in love and kind of never mm. turned back. And when it came to time to do a PhD, I was looking at different programs and Penn State is one that has um, not just a literature option, but a civilization option. So they encourage you to study French, but French in history or French in politics or French in sociology. And um, when I started the program, I got in contact with the geography department and um, a professor, Derek Holdsworth there introduced me to the history of cartography. And it was a way for me to learn about maps, but in the French program, I could learn about French maps. And it was kind of from there that I kind of stumbled on these maps of Paris and thought, well, maybe I should do something with that. So the book, Corey, focuses on how Paris is portrayed in the maps of the capital city published under the Third Republic. And I think I'm sort of loosely paraphrasing something yes. you said in the introduction yes. <laughs> there. I feel like I understand from the comments you've just made 
why Paris and why maps and cartography. Mm -hmm. So maybe if you could tell us a little bit about the periodization of this book, why um, under the Third Republic and specifically why this period 1889 to 1934, I know we're going to talk about it in more detail, but maybe just sort of signaling the the bookends of, of the project. Definitely. And and when I originally thought at doing the PhD at Penn State, I, I assumed I would do something with the Second Empire with Barrett Ousman uh, because of his urbanism of his works and how it just transformed the city of Paris. But mm-hmm. when I started doing my research, I realized that there weren't a whole lot of maps available to the public at large that a lot of French people would actually see. And when I did some more investigations, I realized that they didn't really teach geography. They didn't teach maps in the thir- in the Second Empire or very little. And so um, it, it, it just, I just kind of stumbled on my map for 19, for 19, for 1889, the mm-hmm. Alphonse um, Atlas. And I was at the Archive de Berry and again, just kind of stumbled on it and thought this is really beautiful and it just seemed like a good starting point because 1889 was the centennial of the french revolution the third republic and when we when i discovered in terms of education and the role of geography how it gets a bigger role it it just made sense that i would look at third republic and i ended in 1934 only because we have a couple of urbanism laws that come into play in 1919 and 1932 1934 that will never really come to fruition because of world war ii and then after world war ii there's and maps are much more commonplace after World War II, just mm. in the daily lives of French people. So I right. think that's kind of my parameters right there, my borders. So you mentioned earlier, you know, traveling to France for the first time mm-hmm. and falling in love with Paris. Mm-hmm. So I certainly get you know, <laughs> why a book about Paris and uh, maps in Paris, if you're going to, if you're going to do a project like this, but maybe we could talk a little bit about how Paris works in relationship to sort of the broader region, the rest of France, how you kind of understand Paris in relationship to uh, the nation uh, in this project. Definitely. And of course, you know, when you study France, you study Paris. I have a course called the history of Paris uh, Mm. where I teach now and it's, you know, more or less a history of France when you, when you come down to it. And so of course other people will probably flame me for saying this, but Paris really is <laughs> France. And so when you look at what the governments, you know, plural were doing, um, quite often, it, it really depends on what Paris is doing. And so we have, of course, the revolution of 1789, but the revolution of 1830, revolution in 1848, the commune in 1870. And so France is such an over, excuse me, Paris plays such an oversized role in France that when it came time to look at maps, I was just drawn to Paris to begin with. And mm-hmm. there just seemed to be a lot more map choices um, for Paris where for my dissertation, I studied official or I looked at official maps, but I also looked at travel maps. And of course, Paris was a destination. So 
it, it, it really stems from my dissertation, I think, in that respect, that mm-hmm. travel maps and official maps, there were just a larger selection for Paris, and so it was kind of a convenient choice. But its role in French history, it just seemed like a natural choice. I don't know if that right. kind of yeah. makes sense. Or- yeah, no, that does make sense. And there are places in the book where, and we'll come back to them perhaps, you know, where you're sort of moving out, you know, and not mm. just moving out of the traditional yes. confines and bounds of the city, but Definitely. also thinking about how the nation is being imagined through cartography in this period. It's kind of funny. And many years ago, one of my colleagues, you know, was getting rid of a bunch of roll-up maps. Mm. <laughs> Remember when people mm-hmm. used to use roll-up maps in the classroom? Yes, yes. And so I have a map. Oh. I'm going to have to send you a photo oh my of God, it. I would love that. <laughs> I have a map of France from 1965 that's a roll-up map um, sort of hanging on my wall in my office. And I have another one of the Napoleonic Empire. Anyway, I was thinking a lot about you know, how much of a role maps play in various things that I've thought about and work on. And in fact, I look at one every day in my mm-hmm. office. And I learned a lot from the book about thinking about maps, of course, as a representation of space, mm-hmm. but also thinking about maps in relationship to time and temporality. Um, and a lot of the ideas that you're working with throughout the book, you're sort of drawing on a number of different thinkers and um, approaches and strategies for reading maps, thinking about maps in 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 space and time, um, and the aesthetics of them, and all sorts of other things. So, I guess I wanted to ask you a sort of broad question about who you're thinking with, uh, you know, how you would think about or articulate your theoretical framework, some of the key authors, scholars, theorists who you see your book in conversation with. I, that's yeah, that's a really good question, and you know, maps are one of these things where everyone has seen them, everyone has used them, and as I mentioned, they're kind of accepted as these unbiased informational sources, and mm-hmm. that's so not the case. That there's so many levels that you just can scratch the surface, and you know, the presentation of color or the use of a symbol or a sign, and so of course that brings me back to semiotics, and I think right. the, one of the big influences, um, especially from grad school, is Bart and how he kind of looks at, for him, it's popular culture, the 1950s, and these advertisements or the, you know, the image of the colonialized soldier on the cover of Perry Match magazine and how there's just, you know, so many layers to that meaning. And so for maps, I think that there's a lot of similarities there that you look at a map and you know, the, the cartographer, when he's creating it, he has to make certain choices. Like, of course, that a map is unbiased, but he has to choose which colors to use, how to present something. Mm-hmm. And there's also this notion of map silence. And that's something that I get from J.P. Harley. And there are things that are left off of maps and quite often left off on purpose. And, you know, when we're looking at the Third Republic and the city that had so many revolutions, the idea that you may not want to put slums on the map or you might want to create police stations or present schools in a certain way that people recognize them. And so, you know, Bart, uh, J.P. Harley are big influences uh, for me and how I look at images and how I look at maps. And throughout the book, Corey, you're working with this notion of modernity mm-hmm. and in particular in a kind of conversation with, uh, you know, Many people, if they've read one book about 19th century Paris along these lines, they've read David Harvey's work. So, yeah. Could you talk a little bit about how Harvey fits in here and how you see your work in conversation with with him and with these notions of bourgeois modernity, Paris as a kind of capital of capitalism? (laughs) Yeah. You know, and and, and I look at his book, um, 
and how that was very influential for me because when I look at my maps, they are very much this bourgeois product for a bourgeois audience. And mm-hmm. when we look at modernity, we look at the Second Empire and very much the Third Republic. It's 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 the bourgeoisie that has the power, the bourgeoisie that is creating these maps and the bourgeoisie that is reading the maps. And there's also this notion of modernity as a break. And, you know, we look at the Second Empire and how that is kind of a break from, ideally, it was supposed to be a break from this revolutionary city from of 1789, 1830, 1848, the idea that these boulevards would be, you know, impossible to barricade and the poor would have been pushed out. And so they wouldn't be able to revolt and upend another, you know, this time an empire, but, you know, Mm -hmm. monarchies in the past. And for the bourgeoisie, I think they're looking for stability. And so for these maps, one of the things that I think Alphonse in 1889, um, and I think in the respects the army does in, in the 1906 one, is that to show calmness, to show stability, to show that the government is control, is in control. And I think they're doing that for a certain audience and and you know this this notion of the bourgeoisie this notion of uh you know the capital of the 19th century that these maps should show how the city represents that in the first chapter of the book Corey, working with maps i mean you cover an amazing amount of ground in that first chapter methodologically and historically it's it's pretty impressive Um, it was longer i had to chop a bunch off So I wanted to ask you to say a little bit about some of the conceptual frames and phrases that you use here in this first chapter, map discourse, cartographic discourse, and map rhetoric, and also to say a little bit about how the interaction or relationship between map maker and map reader works for you uh, throughout the project. Definitely. Uh, Map discourse and cartographic discourse were... When, I, when I'm thinking of the grad school and J.P. Harley were perhaps some of the most important terms that I came across, and I had no idea, again, looking at maps, that there is this language, that there is this language of maps that exists. And, you know, part of it is this sign, symbols, the text that you use, the words that you use. And, of course, throughout history, people who win wars are the ones who get to make maps. Um, and so right. they're going to present you know this this map language or this cartographic discourse is going to present their point of view um and again going back to the notion of map silence getting rid of things that they don't need to put on a map you know what you can include or what you cannot include if you lose a war you can't necessarily you know, expect a French map of Alsace-Lorraine after 1870 to get published, for example. And so Mm. that's, I guess, the the main tool I use when I go through and look at my maps is first to look at, like, what's the most noticeable? What do you see? And it's not always necessarily the legend. The legend, you know, sometimes get pushed off to the side, but the legend in theory has a lot of useful information because there are different Mm -hmm. signs and labels and and um you know the first map legend doesn't appear in my book until the carte de majeure or the carte de france um just after the the turn of the 20th century and so that kind of tells you that you know when people are looking at that particular map that they were looking for specific information where the one from 1889 there was no legend there and so the map maker other 
didn't feel that it was needed or that his map was clear enough that, you know, the, the, hmm. the bright yellows or the bright reds were enough of a draw or presented enough information. And so, you know, when the, 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 when the legend starts appearing, that tells me that the map maker kind of realizes that the map reader is becoming more sophisticated. So just little tricks like that, little mm-hmm. blibs of information that that appear kind of set off, not warning signs, but set off little lights or little indicators that the map reader right. is becoming more sophisticated. You know, that all comes down to that cartographic discourse. And, mm-hmm. you know, now with modern technology and Google Maps, you can kind of create whatever kind of map you want, but then you're the map maker and you're probably deciding what to include and what not to include. And- when you're reading this cartographic discourse, over the course of this period from 1889 to the to the 1930s, Corey, like you're reading maps and and thinking about their production and thinking about their circulation and distribution and all that. But is there much of a meta cartographic discourse in this period? That is to say, some of the things that you just talked about are people who are making maps having conversations amongst themselves about making maps, and are you reading that in the book as well? It's interesting. There's um... You know, and especially with France, because France was, it's just not a very cartographically proficient society that we have these creations of the, you know, the Société de Géographie de Paris and Lyon and in different cities that spring up and you have, you know, these very educated men who go and talk about maps and amongst themselves, there's a couple of congrès that will happen as well. And new maps will appear like from the army, for example, and they might talk about it at the conference. And um, I talk a little bit about that in my, my chapter, uh, on the army itself. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, there really isn't, I don't know, this overall discussion that I've really been able to uncover. I know that in Germany, uh, you know, obviously that's a different country, but it was much more cartographically proficient and they had maps in schools. And so it was more commonplace or it was more recognizable, like when you saw a map of your hometown or home region. And the French just didn't really see a lot of maps. And you know, until education, educational reforms by Jules Ferry in the 1880s, they didn't really get maps at all in school. And so they're just, it's one of those things where they may not even recognize a map if they saw it. A, a vast majority of the population, obviously, you know, people in the military would, or, you know, people in travel or the bourgeoisie who did travel, they would recognize maps. But I didn't really find beyond, you know, some of those learned societies that there wasn't this big correspondence going back and forth. The Société de Géographie de Paris, you know, publishes its bulletin and they talk about maps. Um, but I found just as much on, you know, like Americans talking about it or British people talking about it or like the National Geographic. Geographic, for example, kind of rates maps and talks a little bit about some of these maps, but mm-hmm. it's not as common as you would think in France, at least that I was able to really uncover. I, it, you know, these are kind of official maps. And so I was looking more at like official documents and more, I guess, behind the scenes, you know, what was going on um, with the actual leaders themselves, or, you know, later on, it's like open up to competition, maps are open up these design maps are open up to competition. and But again, it's these like urbanists that provide, I guess, or enter the competition and win. And these urbanists 
themselves are, you know, quite often work for the government. It's not necessarily a businessman mm -hmm. that likes maps that is going to draw one, but primarily someone who's been exposed to them, someone that's used to working with them that would probably participate or would most likely participate in any kind of conversation. One of the things that's interesting to me about the book is how it is a kind of history from the mm -hmm. perspective of cartography and maps of the French state in this period. And I guess I wonder how you think about the project in terms of, I mean, for lack of a more nuanced way to say it, a top-down understanding of French history in this yes. period versus a bottom-up. So when we talk about the map maker and the map breeder, I guess I'm also thinking about the map commissioners. Yes. And yeah, how you think about that relationship. I mean, I know over the course of the, from the late 19th century into the 20th century, you're talking about this growing community of readers. But do you think about maps in the period that you're covering in the book as largely a kind of top-down project? Definitely. And I don't know if you've seen the, the cover of my book, but I, I chose a, a photo that just epitomizes this exactly. It's um, from the 1934, after Post has, uh, has, uh, has published his map and he's presenting it to all these profs of the, of the Paris region. And again, it's all these men looking at this map and these old white men, men of power, administrators of the, you know, the, the Seine and other prefects around it. And, you know, from 1889, the, the Carte de France around 1900 um, and those are very much top down. It's the 1889, it's Alphonse. He's, kind of showing what the state has done for the city and published this map for the 1889 World's Fair. The Carte de France, the Service Geographique de l'Armée, it's really the army, these engineers, but at the behest of the president, at behest of the government, the idea that you need to create some kind of accurate representation of France. And so it's dictated that the service geographique, that that's what they will do, that they will create this map. And then when we get to you know the 1919 and the 1934, it's a little bit different. It's still, I would say, top down because it's still, again, kind of a dictate or legislation that's being, that's requiring these maps to take place. It's not necessarily Josely sitting down thinking, oh, you know, Enar, Eugene Enar, I kind of mentioned him in, in my book, and he's this guy who is part of this French state apparatus, but he has these visions of what Paris might look like. And he creates this modernist view with, you know, these roundabouts, which didn't really exist before that, because he did this in 1904, I believe. And there weren't enough automobiles on the roads of Paris necessarily to think about roundabouts and, and, you know, these bridges that X over the Seine and, and these kind of radical views of the city. And that was almost done on his own time. And he's, I think, much, very much an exception to the rule mm. where Josephine Post, they were, you know, Post went, got the, went to, got the, the Prix de Rome and went to, you know, studied architecture and then developed plans for Casablanca and Istanbul and Barcelona and then comes back to Paris because, you know, by the 1930s, they need someone to create this, this master plan. But again, it's at behest of the presidents, at behest of the government kind of dictating mm. that there's this need. The second chapter of the book, Corey, uh, explores, you know, something you've already sort of brought up, this question of education and the role of Republican education in the creation, in the rise of geography and cartography in 19th century France, and the creation and expansion of a map reading public under the, under the Third Republic. And in this chapter, you 
focus, in part at least, on this text uh, that became widespread reading uh, for mostly school-age children, I guess, but not just yeah. school-age children, Le Tour de la France par deux enfants. So can you tell us a little bit about that text and the author and the influence and significance uh, that that atlas, I guess, of, of a sort had? Yeah, you know, and this this is perhaps one of the most surprising things for me. And, you know, people talk about l'histoire de mentalité and going back in time and being kind of surprised by what people did or what they didn't do. And the fact that they have this French history textbook where these two young boys are orphaned after the war and they choose France and they sneak across the border, but they are able to do it because of maps. And they had, you know, the older one had seen this map of the Carte de Majeure on the wall and kind of knows how to sneak around the German soldiers. And it's, you know, very much a pro-Republican. They visit all these different regions and mm-hmm. showcase the Republican ideals of hygiene and not drinking and studying hard and all of this. <laughs> and they visit all these different places, but they're really, when the book is first published, there's no maps at all. And I think it's kind of interesting that they're going around and talking about all these different parts of the nation, but there's no maps, but it, kind of makes sense because it it would probably almost it, it it probably didn't seem like it was something that should be included because no one or very few people would be able to read the maps and not just the mm-hmm. school children but the teachers themselves probably would not know what to do with the map and might be able to read you know Paris might be able to read Lyon or uh, Toulouse or, you know, but they probably wouldn't necessarily know where to find some of those places on the map itself. And so it, mm-hmm. it so, so she does start by including some regional maps, but it's not till after 1900, I believe it's 1905 that she finally has a, a full map of France in the back of the book. And so, um, when does the book first come out? Corey? I want to say it's 1870. I mean, roughly. I want to say like 1876 or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you're familiar with the story, but as I said, they, they kind of go around and they, you know, for example, arrive at this village and it's this old old woman, you know, she only speaks a couple words of French because she speaks the Petois du Midi and they're... You know, after a little bit of waiting, they're kind of feel all alone. And these children come home and they're like, oh, how happy these children, you know, they they're at, they go to school, so they'll speak French. And the children come home from school and they speak French. And and uh, the, these two, you know, children can finally communicate. And that's just how that unifies uh, all the French together. But one thing that I did find quite surprising, in addition to the fact that there were no maps, is when there were maps, they tended to use the old provincial designations. And so in hmm. the book, itself when they talk about you know you're going to this part you're going to that part you're you know you're you're arriving in Berry or you're arriving in Auvergne as opposed to Andre or Cher or Allier and it's not till a little bit later that um that she kind of marries the two each, each time they go to a new place their guide because they end up partnering with these various adults throughout their journey will say oh now we're going to you know Berry and then they might will say they might say something like, oh, the department to share. And so it kind of starts marrying the two nomenclatures where obviously people of the time were still referring to the old provincial designations, even though they didn't really exist since the French Revolution. And the idea of, was probably 
to try to get the French to use these department names as opposed to the provincial names. And so this book, mm-hmm. it, it's one way of doing that is, is, is kind of with these, some of these maps, because she'll call it the carte du Nivernais, du Berry, du, du Bourbonnais et de la Marche. Um, but then if you read or look, in there's some text that, you know, it's a little bit smaller or harder to see, but then you can start seeing some of these department names. And so it's kind of acknowledging that people are still referring to parts of France in the old provincial mm-hmm. ways, but through this text and hopefully the teacher and now these maps that they can start seeing or start using perhaps some of the more Republican designations, these departments, even though they're kind of odd, because if you're from, you know, Paris, you might not know, Loire Cher, or you might not know, you know, Nour or Le Nour or, you know, some of these because they're named after mountains or rivers far away and you've never seen a map in your mm-hmm. community with, so you probably wouldn't expect to know <laughs> some of these names. And so right. it's just a way of, I guess, introducing the French departments and French space to, uh, to school children. Is it fair to say that it's kind of like a cartographic peasants into yeah. French... Men, Definitely, people, I, yeah. I, I I hate to, to equal myself to to that, but oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean because it it it's again these these children had never seen maps, and with a textbook like this, they now can actually look at them because I the goal I guess would be that they would have their own copy or they would share a copy that they could look at them, and with the map of France in 1905, they can follow the map they can follow the the journey if you will of uh the two orphan children as they go around france and so they can touch the map if they want they can follow it they might even be able to take the book home and share it with their parents and if they want it like what have you done in school today they might be able to say oh we followed andre and julien as they traveled between um you know Paris and Lyon or something, and you can follow on the map. And so mm-hmm. the parents might even be able to kind of take a look and say, oh, I didn't know, you know, or that's what that looks like, right? Always heard of. They're able to interact with the maps on a daily basis. They could even touch the maps you know, in the book itself on a daily basis. And that was it's, it's something radical for France where they didn't really exist mm-hmm. before. And with more children in school because of the ferry laws it just is that's that's one of the ways where it is creating these map readers it's people french people can now see maps and you know one of the things they start with this 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 chapter is that the franco-freshian war the french didn't know how to read maps and so when you have this war with the prussians who had had maps in their classroom walls for decades the french the prussians knew the french territory a lot better than some of the french officers and so it's hard to defend against invaders when they have a better understanding of the local terrain than you are than you do and right. you're you know if you have battalions or and you're trying to figure out where to defend or looking for rivers or mountains or whatever it's it's you're not going to know where they are you're not going to recognize it on a map and so the french mm-hmm. government felt that there needed to be something done and you know Fouilly and her uh text kind of fits a nice demand or fills a nice demand uh at a time that the french government needed it i just want to come back Corey, to the image on the cover yes. of the book that you talked about and text because you know you say this at a couple points in the book you sort of signal this the cartographic discourse was you know decidedly masculine yes. this is uh, a masculinist republicanism expressed through maps and so the fact that this text that you refer to and are exploring in this chapter 
was produced by a woman was interesting to me. Do you want to say anything about that? I'm glad you brought that up because it was very interesting to me too. First of all, she publishes it under a pseudonym, a male pseudonym. So people know that it's under G Bruno is how it's, it's, it's published. And so it's, people don't know it's a woman and it was hard to find information about her when I was doing research for the book and who this woman was, but she just was someone that, you know, wanted to write, a textbook for France and eventually is able to incorporate some of these, these maps in there, but Hmm. it all seems to be like her doing. And I know that she's supported by her son and I think he helps, but I think it's, it is a little bit ironic because it's this woman who probably does some of the most to create map readers at a time when, you know, it was all this male, dominated industry and then Vidal mm-hmm. de la Blache is going to play a role too because he he does a bunch of wall maps and so these will be in classrooms perhaps not as much as her text because her text as i said was something that would be at the desk where you could you know touch it you could follow it with your finger if you want where a wall map is a little bit different but you're seeing it all the time too so he is another kind of counterpart but you know, she is I, I think one of the unsung heroes, if you will, mm-hmm. of French cartography for that reason. She's not necessarily as in-depth in creating maps as some people are, but she's definitely on the forefront to make sure that children of France get maps, that children of France read maps, and that children of France kind of make that jump between the old provincial designations and the new Republican de- designations and see what some of these departments look like and see what France looks like. I am so interested in how throughout the book, you know, I guess I, if I was pressed on this, I would think, okay, yes, of course, maps have all of these different uses, but you're really bringing together, <laughs> you know, education, these citizen building narratives, you know, how there's creation of this national identity through maps and education, then the military and travel implications, uh, you know, rail and colonial expansion, and then also this question of public and private, that there are public maps, state maps, but also a little bit of private map production and a kind of connection to a a whole industry of map production that grows over the course of the book. Do you want to say anything about the interaction of all those different spheres and how you kind of manage that in the book? Yeah. And it's, it, it is a little bit tough because there is a lot there. And as I said, in my dissertation, I do look at both official and travel maps, but for the book, I felt I should probably concentrate on just one of the two. And I just kind of like the look of the maps better for official. And so that kind of led me in that direction. But mm-hmm. in terms of these private maps, I mean, Michelin, for example, is, you know, obviously the first Michelin, Guy Michelin France, doesn't come out until 1900, but they get their maps from the Service Géographique de l'Armée and the Carte d'État Majeure. And so they kind of base their initial cartography on state cartography. And so when we look at the Carte d'État Majeure and the Carte de France, it definitely serves a purpose because the army is using it to document French territory, but they're sold to the public. And so people could buy them, people could hang them on their walls. Sometimes it might be decoration. Sometimes people might be interested in looking at it. Hachette is another one that has their own bureau cartographique. And so they go out and create their own maps as well. But I think travel guides are the biggest producers of this private cartography, these Mm -hmm. private maps. If part of what we've been talking about is maps sort of getting a handle on France and the nation, the third chapter of the book, Corey, looks at this atlas, um, Les Travaux de Paris, that really produces these maps covering 
uh, a century, you know, going back to the French Revolution, this collection of maps on the occasion of the centenary of the French Revolution. And you make this really interesting argument that in this particular moment, and what this atlas shows is that the Republic has triumphed over the city in a post-commune, post-series of 19th century revolutions context. Can you tell us a little bit about how that works? Yeah, as in, and I, I kind of touched on this earlier in the interview that Paris is this radical city that mm-hmm. the rest of France seems to hate, especially in the 19th century. Again, we have 1789, we have 1830, we have 1848, and then later on 1870, where the city kind of rises up and just overthrows whichever regime is in control, and the rest of France kind of gets sick and tired of it. And with 1870, um, and of course that's a generalization, obviously there are probably quite a few people in different parts of France that didn't like the oppressive governments and <laughs> absolutist monarchies. Sure. But, you know, I know there was a lot of pro-monarchy sentiment throughout much of the nation. And so, of course, with the commune, where Adolf Thiers has to kind of flee the city, retreat to Versailles, and then eventually go back and kind of, with the French army, attack and conquer all these communards and in the, that bloody week, go through and, and, and march and retake the city. And, you know, the government stays on Versailles until the late 1870s, it doesn't return to Paris until after that because it was just considered this dangerous place. And when we talked earlier about this notion of modernity and this notion of bourgeois livability, that when they want to, you know, the, the government needs to tame Paris. And James Lenning does a good kind of example of this, not necessarily, I mean, Paris a little bit, but um, just, you know, his to be a citizen, mm. how, you know, the government, he does have a chapter in there entertaining Paris where they are finally allowed to have some large scale events like the funeral for Victor Hugo, for example, is right. one where the city is able to host all these people coming together for a common manifestation, um, commemoration, and it goes off smoothly. And so then they have 1878 where they have a World's Fair and it kind of shows that the city has recovered. And so when it comes for 1889, they're having this big celebration of the Republic and they want to prove that the Republic can kind of like take care of the the nation, that the Republic is here for good. And of course, the Bonaparte, uh, Napoleon IV, is is no longer, uh, I think he, he dies before that. And the Comte de Chambord has given up the tricolor flag. And so there really is only going to be the Republic. And people, I think, are starting to embrace that. Mm-hmm. But um the government comes in and, and has to kind of show that the city is under control. And so this this series of maps kind of shows a little bit of all the work that's been done. It starts with the uh, Commission des Artistes for the Revolution, but then it goes through and shows, you know, the first few pages are of what Usman has done. But then when they get to the Republic in 1889, things that are done between 1871 and 1889, he has page after page after page. And I choose the one on boulevards just because that's what Usman has spent so much time on. But mm-hmm. there's one on the water works there's one on the new buildings that were constructed there's one on the new sewer system and it just is kind of this proof that the republic has done so much in these past 20 years and it's not just the center of the city that Usman had you know spent so much time and effort on but now the outer districts the outer arrondissement are getting just as much love if you will (laughs) these yellow boulevards are jetting out you know past the old farmers general hall into the outer arrondissement and buildings are going up and schools are going up and sewer lines are heading out that way and so it's just this proof that the Republican is the Republic is, is has triumphed. For Alphonse and Thiers and all those it is kind of proof that the Republic is 
improving the city. It's calmed the city, and it's a fitting capital now for the Third Republic. This thread of Paris and its extension, the expansion beyond the traditional boundaries of the city and the military fortifications um, into the 20th century. I mean, really, the next three chapters of the book, four, five, and Mm -hmm. six, keep pushing that idea in various ways. The fourth chapter focusing on the military, the second one looking at the sort of post-World War I context, and then the um, sixth chapter really focusing on that interwar period and into the 1930s. So I don't know that we have time to talk about all three of those chapters in depth, but maybe you could uh, kind of situate us in that in that second half of the book, I guess, by focusing on, yeah, how this theme or this issue of Paris growing larger kind of gets expressed through maps and grows as a concept uh, over this period from the beginning of the 20th century up to the 1930s. One of the things I try to do with this book is kind of show how the mental idea or the mental image of Paris kind of changes because, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's much more than just the city limits themselves. But in 1889, that wasn't necessarily the case. The city, that's all the Republic shows in the, the 1889 map. But in the second half of the book, we see the city in reality has pushed beyond these old fortifications, Thiers fortifications. And so um, with the service geographique there, that's the last map they look at that kind of documents the city at the time. Mm-hmm. But for chapters five and chapter six, we're starting to look at the future. Before World War One, cities were getting big. And now with the automobile, you have to start thinking differently and you can't just have these small roads when there's these bigger cars and more of them coming in. And so these laws are passed where cities with more than 10,000 people have to have some kind of comprehensive plan. They have to plan for the future. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't want just haphazard growth happening. And of course, World War One arrives. And after the end of hostilities, in 1919, they finally passed the actual version of the law, but a lot of the money for France is spent rebuilding the North because that's where a lot of the fighting had happened. And so Paris doesn't necessarily have an official plan. So they open it up to competition and they ask people to give these ideas of what Paris should become, how should Paris grow? And there really aren't a whole lot of parameters. They want them to use certain colors for existing like roads and stuff. But beyond that, they have a lot of imagination. And so the winner is uh, Josely, his plant extension. And the term extension is kind of interesting because this idea that they're extending the city and of mm-hmm. course the city itself is, is winged in by the wall. So you really can't extend Paris. Paris is set, but, this you know, mental image of Paris or this idea of Paris really is beyond just the city and all these extra suburbs. So how do you plan for that? How do you grow the city? And so you know, that map, there's all these different bright colors that are used. And basically, he just paints onto this, one of the army's maps. And so it's kind of another use of the, of the old carte, carte de France. Mm-hmm. And he, he envisions, for example, like a bunch of different airports, like seven or eight different airports. He has like these racing, uh, these car racing ovals um he plans for like considering garbage and he also has this brand new fancy port that would exist to the north uh northwest of paris and you know a lot of it's just this wish list that doesn't come to fruition right this is the this is uh the time when urbanism comes into play and this is a relatively new thing for france maybe because of the war but um the musée social kind of 
exists after the 1889 World's Fair, and people wanted to figure out how to better provide uh, socially for the population, primarily the working working population of Paris, and how to give them access to parks, how to give them access to housing. And so he's part of this movement. And so we see a lot of parks that are created, um, you know, where before the city might have just kind of built out and not stopped. There's the debate around the old fortifications because after World War I, they decide to tear them down and there's a lot of empty space there. And the businessmen of Paris, of course, just wanted to build, build, build. But, you know, with Chaucelie and his plan d'extension, he, 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 he plans for like some sporting fields to go in and he plans for some parks to be created around there. And it's just kind of an interesting idea of planning because this is not something that France mm-hmm. has done, let alone Paris has done. And then um, it, it doesn't happen. They don't have any money. So the plan just kind of falls apart. And then by the 1930s, when we get to the last chapter of the book, again, growth is just kind of getting out of control. And I start the chapter, this story about the president, um, he's returning from his weekend home and there's a car accident and he's stuck in traffic for hours and hours and hours and he's just frustrated. And so he decides that they have to have some new legislation that happens. And so where in 1919, it was cities with 10,000 people or more needed some kind of comprehensive plan um, for Paris, he decides that it should be more geographic. And so it's a 35 kilometer radius from Notre Dame. So again, that infamous kilometer zero, mm-hmm. um, there has to be some kind of plan that happens to incorporate the city from a much larger footprint. And so again, this idea of Paris, you know, by the 1930s is is not only not the city or even the city and a little bit of the fortifications and around, but now we're moving out into 35 kilometers into kind of farmland, if you will. And this is where again it's kind of a wish list and he he paints large swaths yellow for industrial and large swaths red for housing and you know it's again more of a wish list but we see the first kind of freeways that are suggested for paris and it's interesting because on his map he has a lot of white arrows that take people out of paris but when you look at the destinations it's like deauville or you know the it's like the seaside destinations and Mm -hmm. so the idea is that people would be escaping Paris on their cars or with their personal automobiles and, you know, getting away from the kind of the chaotic city. And they're able to, you know, get on these freeways and bypass kind of the slum areas, the working class housing, so they can start in bourgeois Paris and get on a freeway and be whisked safely to their countryside and either their country home or a seaside resort. So throughout our conversation, Corey, color has been, has come up a number Mm. of times and I'm sure it's not the only, I mean, I know it's not the only aspect of these maps aesthetically that you talk about in the book. And I guess I, I wanted to ask you about the relationship between, you know, something we haven't really talked about a lot in this conversation, the relationship between map making production, the aesthetic choices that are also sometimes political and other kinds of choices. Mm -hmm that these map makers are engaging in and, you know, changes in something that you explicitly deal with in the book, the the idea of like book and publishing and all of that print culture of this period. Mm -hmm. And then also the art of this moment, like this, this is such a rich moment in terms of aesthetic development and changes in the French context. Like there isn't like there's a moment when that's not true of France, but um, <laughs> like, do you have anything to say about how that swirl of things 
comes together. It comes up a lot in terms of color, but yeah, the aesthetics and then the the print culture aspect of all of this. Yeah, definitely. And and when I you know talking a little bit about the education, and we talked about the bourgeoisie, and you know at this time of this period in France, there's kind of this explosion, if you will, of publishing and private books and you know, correspondence. And so maps are definitely part of that. And earlier, um, definitely before the Third Republic, that, you know, certain color choices would depend on what was available. And quite often it would be if the cartographer had a certain color in stock, they might choose to use that hmm. for cities, for, you know, parks, etc. Um, but as people get more comfortable with maps, there is definitely this idea that certain colors should be used for certain things. And I think that is something that most of my readers today would not be surprised by that you, of course, you'd use blue for rivers or green for parks, but the use of red, for example, or use of yellow, it doesn't necessarily have this natural link. And so when my, my 1889 map, for example, um, you know, I think by 1889, there was definitely a, a, a good selection of color choices. And so for me, that's a good indication that when the map is published in this way, that it definitely was a choice by the cartographer mm-hmm. to use red, to use yellows, to use these colors. And, um, and, and, that, and that, you know, goes into playing on that, you know, our conversation back to the cartographic discourse, that role of color is one of the most important aspects because that's, some of the first stuff you notice on a map mm-hmm. if it's black and white it and if you see a black and white image of paris and a color image of paris you probably are going to be drawn to the color image first and so it makes sense that certain colors might attract an, a viewer's eye more than others and so um just from my research it seems that yellows and reds for example which again probably aren't too surprising are pretty striking colors and so are used to draw attention and you know historically in cartography, that color crimson was used quite a bit, at least in the army. The army actually had specific color guidelines that they had to follow because mm-hmm. um, the the maps all had to be uniform because they're published over you know decades, and so they're ones published in 1830 should, in theory, look the same as those published in 1850, etc. And so that had specific guidelines, but some of the others didn't. And as I said, the 1919 map, there were certain rules, there were three or four colors that they had to use for roads for certain infrastructure items, but the rest, you could just kind of pick and choose what you wanted. And hmm. so he uses, you know, these, these lovely paints that he obviously felt that airports should be lavender, you know, so it's just <laughs> kind of an interesting... But again, it goes back to choice and personal choice by the cartographer more so than technology or limitations. And again, I don't know if right. Lee in his office maybe had extra lavender paint lying around and thought, well, I'll use that for you know the airports or something like that. And so it, there's definitely the step of what is available, but then the step of well, what would I like to show or how would I like to show it? And so it's that's an, kind of a harder concept to investigate because if you don't have any correspondence or any record of these people creating the maps themselves it's you know it's kind of hard to to know exactly what was going through their mind and everything but um it's definitely you know the third republic the belly puck which you know part of this is 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 taking place when my book is happening that i think the aesthetic does play an important role um less so i think on the army one just because that's a state issued but on the other ones, I think, you know, it's definitely a choice in the cartographer and mm-hmm. they want to present the space in a certain way. And 
want to get your attention. The conclusion of the book, Corey, looks ahead to the World War II era and the German occupation and kind of prefigures, you know, the post-war context, thinking about Paris in the post-war, thinking about cartography in the post-war. So yeah, what's the ground that you cover in those final pages of the book? It's interesting because throughout, you know, especially the, the last few chapters when we're trying to plan ahead, we're trying to plan for what's coming up. And we, we you know, the, the 1919, there's this competition and Josué wins and the idea is that this is what Paris is going to be. But of course, that doesn't come to fruition. There's no money. And then Prost has this great plan and he has, you know, some specific details and creating, you know, these freeways and stuff. But then, you know, they run out of the money and then World War II happens mm-hmm. and the Vichy, the Nazis come in. And of course, the Nazis, the Vichy, they, they too will have all of these great plans uh, that they have for the city. And they, of course, are going to get rid of, you know, the French prefect and all of these administrators. And so it's kind of, again, very much a top-down approach to the city. But, right. you know, we all know that Vichy doesn't last long enough to really do anything uh, for the city. And so it, it isn't until after World War II that Paris finally is going to not only plan for the suburbs, but actually have concrete results and they eventually were going to create the Ile de France region. So I think that's kind of a, a, not a result necessarily, but I think that the idea of that 35 kilometer limit from the the, the Parvis de Notre Dame, you know, that is kind of a start of the idea that if you're going to plan for Paris, you have to plan for not just Paris, but the Paris and the suburbs. And so after World War II, they finally get to do that with, you know, the creation of the Ile de France region and the elimination of the Seine Department and everything that they're able to kind of, you know, plan for this. And there's this image of Charles de Gaulle in a helicopter, you know, flying over the suburbs and thinking now we have to figure out some kind of order for all that down Mm -hmm. there. And this idea that, you know, again, it's, it's, it, for France, especially, it's very much going to be a state top-down approach to controlling the region, controlling the city's growth, and for better or for worse, they you know have these big you know freeways, auto route that go out, and they do eventually tear down that wall. And now we see that there are a bunch of parks that go in, and so some of these do come to fruition, others don't. But the you know in the nineteen nineteen and nineteen thirty four kind of foretell a time when we are going to you know plan for the future and actually get something done. Mm-hmm. You know, this is maybe silly, but as I was finishing your book, I was thinking about the fact that the first time that I went to Paris, I, um, it was in the nineties, <laughs> the mid nineties. Mm-hmm. Me too. Me too. And, um, <laughs> you know, I, I don't think before I went, I think I picked one up when I got there, I got my plan de Paris, you know, that I carried with me everywhere. And the last time I was in Paris a few years ago, I used my phone. I had this like, you don't have to be connected to the internet map or something that, you know, as I'm walking and I, I don't know, I was thinking about that and thinking that I was going to, that I wanted to ask you an absurd question, which is, what do you think about the digital age? (laughs) Which is just, (laughs) let's talk for another hour. But yeah, I guess I, I just think about the sort of quality, the tactile and material quality of all of this that you cover in the book. And how much that's changed. And as somebody who works on cartographic discourse, at least, okay, let's not take on the whole universe, but like with respect to Paris, what do you think? I don't have that. I mean, I have one somewhere. I found it about It's probably on a bookshelf somewhere. But I just feel like that has changed the way I interact with 
all cities and all space, but but yeah, with Paris in particular. So yeah, I just wonder if you have any thoughts about that. I, absolutely, because I think back to as I said at the very beginning of the interview, I you know this this young kid from South Dakota who took out an atlas and kind of mm-hmm. all these spaces, and that doesn't really exist anymore. You could look, I can take out my phone, and you know, if I'm watching a TV show and they talk about a certain place, I'll of course take out my phone and go to Google Maps, and I instantly have an image of that city or you know that region or that country. And so, and part of me is like, oh, that's great because it's just that instant satisfying of my curiosity. But at the same time, I'm you know I'm there's this nostalgic aspect where <laughs> I like maps and I study maps. And so I'm in a little bit of denial. People always ask me, you know, Oh, like digital technologies. And I think they're awesome. And, you know, some of my students, I do create some of these digital maps, but I like the old ones. I like going to the archives and flipping through maps. And, you know, some of these, I kind of happened on just by accident and, you know, that eventually is, will no longer be a possibility. So mm-hmm. I, I don't know. There's no good answer to that. <laughs> so, Corey, one last question. What are you working on now? I am going in a totally different direction. I am looking at maps of Africa. And mm. I kind of, and, and, and my, my goal here is to look at how, and again, I'm, you know, the, in terms of France and stuff, how they kind of fill in empty spaces on some of these maps. And I primarily am thinking of like the Sahara Desert and, you know, and, Eventually, I think I would like to look at maybe some jungle areas as well and how, you know, initially the French are going to present these spaces as empty Mm. because, of course, there's nothing in Sahara. But as they encounter the indigenous peoples that are there, that that's not the case. And so how do they fill in some of those spaces and, uh, you know, in, in in nomadic societies that exist in the northern part of Africa are also a challenge for, you know, French cartographers who are used to mapping their own domestic space with villages and roads and railroads and stuff. And so the, some of the challenges that go in with that, and I would love to, and it's, it's, it's been kind of hard to look at some indigenous cartography and pre-arrival of the French and, and, and their, you know, when they arrive in like North Africa and the mm-hmm. desert and stuff. So that would be something I like to investigate further too. But kind of getting away from cities, getting away from France, and taking a look at another place as a child, I always was like excited to learn about. And you know, like Africa, it just doesn't get any more different than South Dakota, <laughs> right? So definitely the draw there, and, and 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 to take a look at that. Well, that sounds totally fascinating. I hope you'll keep me posted on that project. Corey, I just want to thank you so much for writing this book and for speaking with me. Well, thank you very much. It was it was a, a pure joy. I love talking about Paris and I love talking about maps and I love, love talking about maps of Paris. <laughs> You've been listening to New Books in French Studies, a podcast series on the New Books Network. <laughs>